Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. Another reason that children are motivated to eat. So the smell, the texture, the taste, the enjoyment, but also babies wanna eat in response to social interactions. Curiosity is a huge motivator. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Well, hello, guys. Welcome back. I am so excited to have Marsha Dunn-Klein on the podcast again today. There's so many topics that I always want. Every time I meet with Marsha, I end up making more work for her, I feel like, because then we think of extra or additional podcast episode topics. So this one bore out of our Last interview, Marsha did an interview with us called Sensory 101, and she was teaching all about sensory experience for learning how to eat. You guys loved it. It's one of like the most downloaded episodes we have. At that time, she's like, we really should do an episode on like helping parents stay in their lane and defining what our roles are in infant feeding. So today's episode is kind of born out of that idea. What are parent and baby roles in infant feeding? This is Marsha Dunn-Klein's take on it. So if you're not familiar with Marsha, she is an occupational therapist specializing in pediatrics, specializing in working with kids who have in particular feeding challenges. She's done this for over 50 years. Marsha co-authored the first book on pediatric feeding called Pre-Feeding Skills. Her latest book is Anxious Eaters, Anxious Mealtimes, Practical and Compassionate Strategies for Mealtime Peace. 
In 2021, Marsha and some of her other credentialed feeding colleagues started the Get Permission Institute, an online education platform providing feeding courses for professionals based on the principles of Marsha's Get Permission approach. So we had a great conversation kind of about giving credit where credit is due and so much of what other feeding therapists learn and what we even learn as parents in the feeding world, a lot of it's actually attributable to Marsha. So I'm going to highlight some of those in this interview because I think it is important we sometimes hear these terms. For example, positive tilt. That's Marsha's term. She teaches that in the Get Permission Institute. She's going to tell you guys a little bit about what a positive tilt is in today's episode. So if you've ever been like, hmm, I wonder if I'm like stepping out of my lane with this baby feeding thing, or you're not really sure if you're doing your job. And I know we sometimes question if we're doing it well. You guys are doing a fabulous job, but it doesn't hurt to hear from someone who works with families in feeding therapy and feeding challenges to understand, okay, when things go wrong, what goes wrong? And then maybe what can we do ahead of that to prevent it? So that's the gist of today's interview. It's called Stay in Your Lane, Parent and Baby Roles in Infant Feeding with Marsha Dunn-Klein. Hi, Katie. Nice to be here. All right. Last time you were here, we were chatting all about sensory issues related to feeding. So I don't know if you remember, but that episode was called Sensory 101, What Motivates Babies to Eat with Marsha Dunn-Klein, one of our most downloaded interviews. So Marsha, parents love that topic. They love the way you teach. We're going to talk about their roles and babies' roles in infant feeding. But before we get started, could you give us a little background and share what you do for our audience who may not yet be familiar with your work? I love the word yet. The whole world is filled with things we haven't yet done, we haven't yet eaten, or we haven't yet known about. So I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. I've been working with children with feeding challenges for over 50 years now. It's a passion and my life's work. I've written books and I've invented feeders and spoons. And I lecture around the world when the world is open. And currently, Katie, I've been trying to record a lot of the information that I teach in my Get Permission approach in the Get Permission Institute, which is an online platform for teaching. So I'm trying to kind of collect information in a place where people can find it. So those are some of the things I've been doing lately. But as you said, I just love teaching about this topic. I love feeding babies and helping parents figure out how to help their babies enjoy mealtimes. And you're amazing that you've been doing this for over 50 years. And yet, you guys, she just told me that she got done teaching this three-day course for professionals in Australia. It was like probably some weird time. You're like a machine. You never stop. You're always giving. And I'm so grateful that you share your time and your talents with our audience because I think historically, like, for example, I looked at the pre-feeding skills book. You know, it's like 150 bucks on Amazon. And like, this is not stuff that's really like accessible to parents. And yet now, I think with podcasts and social media, like it used to just be feeding professionals who got to learn from Marsha Dunklein, but now parents get to as well. And of course, the feeding professionals are still very important, but I appreciate that you speak directly to parents as well. And I have been learning in, since COVID. I've, Katie, I've been learning lots more about Zoom teaching and and online support of families. And so it's much easier to be in people's homes and answer people's questions. So, Well, we're in their earbuds today. So we're in their ears. And you teach a lot about respect in the feeding relationship. And I would guess that would have something to do with knowing your role or your job as it does in any relationship. So what are the roles or jobs that both parents and babies should fulfill during this period when the baby is transitioning to solid foods and learning how to eat? Oh, what a great question. So one of the things, ways you could think about this is that we adults and babies each have roles in this relationship. It's a partnership in feeding. 
with the baby and the parent. And we each have roles. And in a way, we need to stay in our own lane. You know, in a way, we need to know what's our job and what's the baby's job. Because if we get into their face and do their job, or if they're trying to do the parent's job, it can go wrong. And you know, Katie, I've worked with so many babies through the years that have breathing problems and heart problems and feeding tubes and all kinds of physical or sensory reasons why they're not eating. But also very typically developing babies can have kind of a mismatch of interaction with their parents when they're learning about foods. And so we're trying so hard to help parents uh, really know their roles and babies' roles. So for example, if we think about it, the American Academy of Pediatrics gives us a lot of support for the idea that the parents provide the food and the children decides. The children decide what they want to eat. In the get permission approach, we use the terminology, it's the parent adult job to offer. And that's inherent in the word offer is a choice. And the, the baby says, yes, I want that or no, I don't. So the parent offers, the child decides, of all the things you offered, what do I want to eat? Some of this is really reflected in Ellen Satter's Division of Responsibility, where she talks about adults decide the menu, the where, and the when of mealtimes. As parents, it is important for us to decide the when of mealtimes because we want to give babies food and then a break and then food and then a break because we want to give them the privilege of being hungry at a meal because when you're hungry, you're a little more likely to try some new things and really have a good meal. I do take this role of it's the adult job to determine the menu very seriously. And that's not going to look the same for every child every time. I'm not going to decide the meal and say, we're having crab legs tonight, take it or leave it. I'm going to be careful that whatever it is I'm offering is developmentally appropriate for that baby, for that child's developmental age, for that child's you know, I happen to work with a lot of really picky eaters. So sometimes we need to adapt what we're offering children because of their severe pickiness for those children who only eat five foods. So I take the role of adult job to offer very seriously because our offering needs some knowledge behind it. And that's what I love, Katie, about your 101st Foods because you are giving parents the ideas of what kind of things are developmentally appropriate to offer. Now, it's the child's job, the baby's job in feeding to let us know this food works for me and it doesn't. This is a food that I like and I want. And how they tell us they want it is by reaching for it, by leaning into it, by opening their mouth if somebody's offering an initial taste on a spoon. You know, I know that we don't have lots of spoons in a baby led weaning, but you have a little, a little chapter where you give kids a, a few days of of interacting with a spoon where the parents might offer and the child says they're ready or not. And how do they do that? They open their mouth. This is not a demand when we offer. It is not a demand. It is a, an offer which inherent in it is a choice. So not every baby, when we first offer them some interesting little foods, they might not just jump into those foods the first day or two. They might pick it up, play with it, smell it, and do the things babies do when they're motivated to try a new food. They're motivated to try because they're hungry. They're motivated to try because they might like the smell. They might like the texture. They might bring it towards their mouth and like some flavor. Those motivating factors allow children to enjoy their experience with food and building on positive experiences, babies learn to eat. 
This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. You mentioned hunger two times, and I completely agree with you. I love the language that you use about giving a child the privilege of being hungry, but I don't want parents at six and seven months of age to expect for their baby to eat in response to or to alleviate hunger because milk is still providing the majority of their nutrition while they're learning how to eat. So maybe we could just break it down that it's a little bit later in the self-feeding process where baby is now, and I call it casual hunger but being allowed to experience some casual hunger, we don't want you starving your baby out at six months and then expecting them to magically know how to food make that feeling go away because then they start freaking out and then there's choking risk, like it gets ugly fast. So I know that you're kind of speaking for the whole spectrum. I just, I'm thinking of the six and seven month old moms who are like, oh my gosh, my baby's not eating in response to hunger. Such a good point. Yes, Katie, when I think about hunger, I think about it as the baby is evolving into participating at mealtimes later on, you know, closer towards a year, you begin seeing a lot more sort of, hey, I'm grumpy because I'm hungry kind of responses. So I agree with you completely. Another reason that children are motivated to eat. So the smell, the texture, the taste, the enjoyment, but also babies want to eat in response to social interactions. They see parents eating. They see their siblings eating. They see food on a tray in front of them, and it looks kind of interesting curiosity is a huge motivator. So thanks for keeping me honest on that one, because yes, we're not trying to starve kids into trying new foods in your hundred first foods. Absolutely not. Because those babies are going to start out by eating because of interest, curiosity, but we want the motivation for their eating. We want it to be internal. And we did this fabulous interview. I mean, the interview was not fabulous. I was doing it, but the interviewee was fabulous. And we interviewed Rosan Meyer, who's a PhD dietitian who specializes in growth. And we were doing the whole episode on catch-up growth and how unfortunately many physicians will tell parents they need to start solid foods early to help with catch-up growth. And not only is that a wildly inappropriate recommendation, it's physically impossible for a child who is not physiologically ready to eat yet or know how to eat to use quote-unquote calories and energy from food to fuel growth. Like you can't expect a baby to use food to fuel extra growth when they don't know how to use food. And that's why I love your approaches because you always are meeting the baby where they're at. Developmentally, they can't eat enough, quote unquote, meat to meet all their iron needs, but that's okay because they still have milk as this kind of insurance policy in this learning to eat process. So I think we need to keep remembering this is a continuum. 
We don't flip a switch and baby knows how to eat overnight. And you're always reminding us of that, for which I am thankful. When I think about one of the roles, parents versus children, it is the child's job to eat as much as they can when they're ready. And we follow their pace, right? So that's why we're offering different foods. And they show us that this one's working and I love this one and I'm going to eat more of this and less of that. They make those decisions and it's coming from them. That is the most amazing way to help children develop internal motivation to eat. They're eating because it's motivating to them for some reason that we've talked about. They're eating because over time, they're going to be eating because they're filling up on it and it's meaningful to them to relating to their hunger. You know, over the next six and eight months, you're going to see more of that. And they're learning, I can stop when I need to stop and nobody's going to make me. What happens when we get confused about our roles, Katie, is when we grownups decide, I've determined you're going to eat this amount and this many things. That's getting out of our lanes. And when pediatricians, well-meaning, say, I want this child to catch up in their growth, what that tells us parents who love our children so much, it tells us parents, I better try harder to get food in. And it's actually not our job to get food in. It's our job to offer and let them take in what they can, what they're able to, and what they enjoy. So when mealtime starts to be externally motivated, meaning I'm the grown-up and I'm going to get seven more bites in you and I'm going to get you to finish this jar of baby food and I'm going to get you to eat this much. When that mismatch happens, we're telling the child, hey, it doesn't matter what you think. Hey, don't pay attention to your body and how much you want to eat. Hey, I get to veto that because I'm the grown-up. And that's where the mismatch happens. We, many of us adults, Katie, you know, some of us eat even though we're not hungry or eat more than we want. And we're not great at listening to our own bodies. Many people who have over and underweight problems as adults will describe being forced to eat things they didn't want to or more than they could when they were growing up. And so if we constantly as adults are saying, eat more, eat less, or eat differently than you are capable of, then we're telling them to ignore their body. And that's a disservice. And I think it is for a lot of parents, if they grew up in that environment where they were told to eat X or Y or Z amount, or even to this day, we have pediatricians or sometimes dietitians who recommend arbitrary portion sizes. Parents feel like, well, I have to eat that amount. And you mentioned Ellen Satter and the division of responsibility and feeding theory. And I think what parents are oftentimes really the eye-opening component of the DOR in feeding is that it's, as Ellen says, the baby's job to determine how much or even whether they eat. And that's language that they've kind of added recently or whether that some days your child, and in this case, your baby may not eat. And that's okay, because it's not your job to make your baby eat. But for some parents, they grew up in an environment, well, no, it is the parent's job to make the kid eat. Or the doctor says the kid has to eat this much. And so there's conflicting messages out there. Absolutely. And one of the brilliant parts about thinking about feeding babies from a baby-led weaning or a very responsive way is that we are allowing, encouraging, actually requiring we grown-ups to offer, but babies to decide what they're going to eat. And they know how they're ready. And so, Katie, you work with so many babies and some of them just take the food right away and are so excited. And other ones are just a bit more cautious. Babies have different temperaments different experiences. So we want to, as adults, create positive experiences with them so that they want to come to the table and that being in the high chair is an enjoyable place to be. And they're not afraid and worried and pressured to eat differently. We're giving them the opportunity. And as they gain skills, as food is meaningful to them, as food 
is enjoyable, children will eat more. And the brilliance of this approach is that it is supporting internal motivation, internal, what we call interoception, like how it feels inside of us. You know, it's, I feel, and gradually the baby's going to feel some hunger and notice that food relates to that hunger. And that's going to be later in a year, you know, between a year and two, you're going to see a lot more relationship to hunger. When babies first start, they're eating because it's curious, because it's interesting, because it's sensory, because it's playful. Now, not to get negative, because I know you love to focus on the positive, but you are a feeding therapist and you are an expert who works with many types of children, including those that have feeding challenges. So if we may learn from your experiences, is there particular language or behavior that you see parents probably inadvertently engaging in that causes them to, quote unquote, get out of their lane? Like, what are the things that parents are doing that might cause the baby to go into feeding therapy? Not blaming or shaming the parents, just understanding that you work with a lot of kids with feeding challenges. Absolutely. We're not going to blame or shame. I believe parents are doing the best they can. I believe children are doing the best they can, but we have to figure out how to make those matches work really well together. But for example, I've known lots of parents through the years that decide that the first food they're giving their baby is going to be a jarred baby food. If families are going to use jarred baby food, I love them to use it as a smoothie in a cup because the baby then gets to be in charge or use it through straws later on, you know, so the baby gets to be in charge. But I've met many families who think my baby's ready to eat by mouth and I'm going to give them this jar of baby food and somehow have believed that that jar is the serving size. That could be a a misperception because the jar if you think it's a serving size, you're going to get it wrong because some babies want to eat more. And some- Marsha, I'm a dietitian, and I thought that with my oldest. I was like, this three ounces must be the magical amount of smashed up carrots. Like, I should know better, but you, I'm a victim of marketing. Right. But so if you think that's the serving size, you get it wrong because some babies want more and some want less, which is the joy of an intrinsically motivated baby led weaning approach because you're letting the child decide how much of this food, whatever the food is that they're going to eat. So that's one mistake that families can make. And it's natural, it's common, but it's possible that it doesn't work for the child. It's also possible that the child, the parent ended the meal. We got rid of the food in the jar, the meal's over. But the child didn't have the opportunity to say I was done because the parent removed the food. Or it's possible at the end of that meal, the child wanted more and they learned, oh, nobody cares if I need more because there was just no more food. So that's an example. Another example could be when that doctor said, I want your child to catch up in their growth. The baby ate whatever the baby wanted and you were being just lovely at offering and waiting for the child to eat what they could. But at the end of the meal, somehow the parent believed my child didn't get enough in to eat today. So I'm going to just get them to eat a few more bites. I'm going to get them to just sit here a little longer and get them to eat more. Whenever we get into that role of it's my job to get them to eat, we're out of our lane. and so. I mean, some children who aren't eating enough who have medical challenges, of course, we have to pay attention to that. But some of those kiddos may need feeding tubes or extra supplementation or the food prepared in an easier way for them to eat it because maybe chewing it is too hard. There are lots of ways we can deal with that. But if we're beginning to feel like, oh, it's my job to just get more in, we've got to stop and think, whoa, what's going on? The other thing, Katie, you know, as a dietitian so well is that Oh my gosh, between six months and three years, babies' volumes at each meal can vary. What I love about baby led weaning and early transitions to solids is the baby's still breastfeeding or bottle feeding. They're still getting nutrition 
while they're learning to gain skills with eating. The volume fluctuation. So volume fluctuates a lot. So no two meals are the same. No seven meals are the same. Babies have a big meal and a little meal, and then they're enthusiastic about this food and then not so enthusiastic and they're tired. That babies bring to the mealtime their readiness, their mood, their temperament, their how much they've eaten, how recently, what they think of green food. They bring all that to the table. And so this meal may not be a huge meal, but the next meal, they may have two big meals in a row and then kind of a wimpy meal. That's how babies eat. But when we as grownups start expecting you need to eat the same amount every meal, it can go wrong. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Can I give you a great example? Your examples are always the greatest. All right, so this is a 19-month-old baby came into the office and just looked like a gorgeous, healthy baby. He was doing advanced language talking. He looked stocky. He was chubby. He just looked great. So babies that look so healthy often weren't coming into my office because I often saw a lot of really medically challenged babies. Okay, so this mom said her concern was the child was screaming every time she tried to put him in the high chair. So mealtime was a battleground. And oh my goodness, my heart breaks because this mom just wants to feed her child and things went wrong. But when you ask her, when did it start going wrong and what's going on? And she said to me, and you're going to appreciate this, Katie. She said. I went to a dietitian when my child was 12 months of age. And I said to the dietitian, I don't know anything about feeding my baby. I really have no idea. And she had been doing baby foods before that. And so the dietitian said, well, this is about how much babies eat at about what age and about the serving size. And we want to aim for, you know, some protein and some fruit and some vegetables and some carbohydrate and some dairy, you know, so they, the dietitian did what dietitians do great. They just told us these are the concepts, but this very sweet mom who wanted to be the best mom ever decided I will give my child all of that, all the right amounts, every meal, and I will make him eat it. And honestly, I'm just not blaming this mom, but she thought that was her job. And those of us who feed babies a lot know that some days they just ate grapes. And some days there was a lot of cheese and some toast. And some days it was little pieces of ham. And some days they liked the avocado and some days they didn't. So those of us who know babies know that we're going to offer And it's going to take a while for it to feel like a totally balanced diet, right? As children gain interest and skills. But this mom, bless her sweetheart, decided that if a tablespoon of each food group is the amount, I will get that amount in and he will sit there till he gets that in and I'm going to be a good parent. And so what happened by 19 months is the mom had gotten out of her lane because she thought it was her job to get all that food in. And he basically said, I'm rebelling. You're not in charge of my mouth. I don't want to be in the high chair. This is terrible. And all we had to do was help her put food out, offer it, sit nearby him, eat her food. And in a couple of weeks, he was back to eating on his own just fine. But we also gave the vacation a high chair for a couple of weeks because it was a bad. But also, I, if I can just interject, we can also help that dietitian with skills to intervene before feeding therapy is needed by knowing about, for example, your get permission approach and what a positive tilt is and educating parents. Because sometimes, to be honest, and I, this is my fault as well as a dietitian, we sometimes just get so zeroed in on the numbers 
that maybe that mom walked away thinking that that was the most important thing because that dietitian wasn't looking at the developmental appropriateness of those recommendations or even the mom's capacity to understand and interpret that. And dietitians have a bad habit of being the food police. Part of the work that I do is educating other dietitians on different approaches to feeding because we are still learning in our nutrition throughout the life cycle courses. And I teach nutrition throughout the life cycle at the college and university level, Marsha. The books talk about starting solid foods, purees by spoon, force feeding at four months of age. Like how is the profession supposed to help a mom like that not get to feeding therapy if they're not even learning about the research that supports a baby-led approach? Like this kind of a larger problem, maybe for a different episode, but I appreciate you sharing that anecdote. And I don't want to blame that dietitian, but there's certainly a lot of work to be done. Well, and to be fair, the dietitian may have said things exactly right and the parent interpreted it differently because she wanted to be a really great parent. Or one of my pet peeves is that I think when a parent comes to us with questions and we give some support, we have to find a way to follow up and know in a week, hey, how is that going? How are those ideas going? Because the sweet mom went from 12 months to 19 months struggling and didn't go back to ask the dietitian because she already knew, quote, what she was supposed to be doing, quote. And it took her till 19 months for the pediatrician to say, you know, you need some support here. And that's why I love like coaching and we do weekly office hours with our students and come back on and tell me, how did it go trying lamb? And the mom will be like, no, it was an absolute and utter abject failure. And here's what's happened. They're not going to tell you that on social media and that's not the forum for it anyway. But I love the smaller, more intimate groups where you can follow. Like, All right, what went wrong and what can we learn from it? And another mom tried that this week. And how did that work? Like, that makes you feel so much more connected to other parents who are going through the same thing so that you don't get to a point where you need feeding therapy. And I love and respect the work that feeding therapists do, but there's so much we can do to help prevent even needing to go there. Exactly, exactly. So we teach baby first taste classes, you know, that when you're going from breast and bottle to solids, you know, our clinic that I don't own rent anymore, but the clinic I co-founded um, still offers those. And these are courses for, you know, babies, typically developing babies and parents that are just, that want this kind of support, just like you're offering your baby led weaning classes. There is now, I'm so grateful, there is support out there for parents to sort of hear these stories. One of the things I say to parents is when you're offering food, again, it's not to get food in, it's to find out what does your child love? If we can think about the, reframing it differently, and we can think about making sure parents know that follow-up is possible and encouraged, we can prevent so many challenges. Another one of my pet peeves, Katie, is follow-up. And I think that a parent should not call a feeding clinic and say, we have a wait list for four months. That's totally inappropriate in my mind. When parents call saying, I'm worried about feeding, they need to be able to get in right away because we all know that feeding challenges can just get worse. When it's going bad, it can really go down the tube pretty quickly. Parents struggle and need support. So whether you're seeing a dietitian to give you ideas or a feeding therapist, or whether you're just trying to get into a clinic that offers support, we have to offer timely support and timely follow-up that's easy so things don't go wrong and go bad. Marsha, for parents who do want to learn more, what courses do you currently offer or will be offering soon that parents as well as healthcare practitioners who work in feeding can take to learn more so that we can be part of the solution and not part of the problem? Well, I mean, I really just send people to your Instagram account and to your courses. Well, I just send them to your courses. So. <laughs> for typically developing children, I'm going to send them to places that are already doing that. I don't have a course like that right now because there are people that are great people out there doing it, Right. So that's one thing. Some parents are, are readers, and so they're going to read books on this, and some parents are visual learners and, and Instagram learners. So there's different ways. But 
when things start going wrong, the Get Permission Institute, my platform, we do have courses on ones that's called the Dear Parent. And so people could go right now to the Get Permission Institute and look up the Dear Parent class and it's free. And so it's a way to just find out about Dear Parent, essentially, Dear Parent, you have a child who's really a picky eater. Let's talk about it. The kids that I tend to work with tend to be the most extreme of picky eaters that have a really, really narrow diet. So there is some beginning help there in that regard. There's some classes on what does pressure do to the body when you pressure kids to eat? So permission and pressure is a course that we offer. We offer a course about setting up the environment of mealtime peace. We offer a course in toothbrushing, in the sensory aspects of food. So when a parent is feeling that their situation has gotten to be a battlefield and really uncomfortable, those extremes questions, um, you might want to come to our website to see. Well, Marja, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. And I just, I love your way with language. I know you're an occupational therapist, but part of me is like, in another world, you're a speech expert too, because you choose your words so wisely because words really matter. And I appreciate all of the words that you've taught us and brought to us in the feeding world through which I can't believe it's like 50 years of your body of work and you're still going at it. So I hope I have half the energy that you do when I am in the decade of life that you are. Well, thank you so much. And I, I'd love to come back. You and I chat and we have so many topics. Every episode we do. I'm so sorry. Every time you work with me, it makes more work for you because we come up with at least two more episode ideas that we need to do. I will link to everything in the show notes for this episode. If you guys go to blwpodcast.com and just type Marsha, I'll link to all of your previous episodes as well as your course. And then if you don't mind just sharing the full title of your most recent book too, because I think that really resonates with a lot of parents in our audience. So for those parents that have children who are really picky eaters, my most recent book is called Anxious Eaters, Anxious Mealtimes, Practical and Compassionate Strategies for Mealtime Peace. And it is really filled with lots and lots of practical information. I offer a master course that's three days long on that topic for professionals that are really interested in it. We've never turned a parent away, but it isn't actually, it, it's meant to give feeding therapists ideas about how to support families. It's long, but it's really practical, Katie. So, And we have a lot of practitioners who listen as well. So I'll link to those courses as well, but also everything is on Marsha's site at getpermissioninstitute.com. Yes. Thank you, Marsha. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Katie. Keep sharing your passion out there. Families need you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Marsha Dunklein. It's so hard to interview her because for the first half an hour, I can't stop talking to her. And she's like halfway through, like, do you want to do this interview? I was like, oh yeah, sorry. Let me ask you the questions and record it. I just absolutely love speaking with her. I love hearing the history of where she's been from, the pioneering work that she's done in infant feeding. And then the fact that she's accessible to us as parents and other healthcare practitioners to share what literally is more than five decades of work at this point. And do the math on that. She'll tell you she's in her 70s and she is just so incredibly energetic and still cranking out trainings left and right. So go to getpermissioninstitute.com. Marsha, thank you for everything you do. And I will also link to all of the resources because there were a lot that Marsha Dunklein mentioned in today's episode. All you have to do is go to the show notes at blwpodcast.com forward slash 206. Thanks for listening, guys. <music>